Welcome to this week's episode of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee. Excited to be bringing a great guest to you this week, one of the smartest minds in energy policy. He's had experience in the United States Senate. He's worked in the nuclear industry. Alex Flint is currently serving as the executive director for the Alliance for Market Solutions. Alex, thank you for joining us on the Plugged In Podcast. It's always great to see you. Well, uh, let's jump right in. For our listeners who are pretty well versed in the nuances and the players in the energy space, but this is plugged in. We like to go deep. Tell them a little bit about what the Alliance for Market Solutions is and, and how you came to be a part of this organization. The Alliance for Market Solutions is a group of Republicans who acknowledge that the climate is changing and want to see Republican policymakers engage on the issue and even one day come to lead on the issue. We think this is a serious problem confronting the country and humanity and that there are policy prescriptions that are consistent with conservative values, then we need to get on, to, on with it and start implementing some of those policies instead of some of the policies that others on the liberal left are pursuing. So let's get into a little bit of your background. You and I first met, you were working in the United States Senate. You were the top aide on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee for Republican chairman uh, and ranking member of that committee. You worked on a number of energy policy initiatives. There was a time when climate change and carbon mitigation wasn't political. John McCain was the Republican nominee for president in 2008. And he was the author of a cap and trade bill. Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee for president in 2012. He today uh, has been one of the most vocal folks calling for action on carbon mitigation. When do you think it was that sort of the politics changed on the Republican side regarding combating climate change? So, Neil, I started thinking about climate change when I was on the Senate Appropriations Committee responsible for the, the budgets of the U.S. nuclear weapons complex. And I remember meeting with scientists at Los Alamos and Livermore in the mid-1990s, very concerned about climate change. And at the time, it was a technical problem. It was something that scientists were working to inform policymakers about, and the politics hadn't yet taken over the issue. I think the politics really began to raise its head when Al Gore ran for president, and he took such a strong position on climate that it became a differentiating issue at the top tier of American politics and was politicized. And I think at that moment, different interests, particularly those who were concerned that climate policies would affect their businesses, began to take advantage of that and sort of exacerbated that difference in the politics. And I think at that point, the politics began to, to diverge. Um, to me, that's terribly unfortunate. The underlying economics and science has continued to evolve fairly consistently. And one of the great challenges today is we have to figure out how to get a reconvergence of politics on this issue. You know, this is a climate change is something that is going to affect us on the multi-decade time frame. And we need to figure out solutions that will have political stability, durability for those sorts of timeframes. And that requires Democrats and Republicans working together and agreeing on policies that the private sector can then anticipate over the long term and prepare for and, uh, and accommodate. You note Al Gore's role in sort of putting this on the radar, but also potentially politicizing it. But Al Gore famously lost to President George W. Bush. Uh, towards the end of the Bush administration, you and I were both were there working in different capacities. The Bush administration was contemplating putting forward a 4P bill, and then suddenly we sort of lost it. Do you think it was sort of 
the approach during the Obama administration, whether it was Waxman-Markey or the Clean Power Plan via EPA, uh, when did you really start to see the tide turning in Republican circles against carbon mitigation? Well, I think when when Waxman-Markey passed the House and uh, various variations of that, Lieberman, Graham, McCain started to be contemplated in the Senate. Uh, My view was there were never more than about 43 votes for that approach in the Senate. They had to get to 60 to beat a filibuster. And I think that many who were devotees of cap and trade sort of recognized the political reality and gave up on that approach. And and my view, and I simplify things a little bit, but I think that John Podesta, who's then White House Chief of Staff, recognized that the the Congress was not going to legislate on climate change. And so he pursued and and oversaw a strategy of global commitments through the Paris uh, Agreement and an expansion of the regulatory state through CAFE and the Clean Air Act and other things, and as the, the logical response to the lack of legislation. But what that did was that caused sort of these bilateral commitments by the president internationally and the regulators to pursue, to really repurpose statutes and regulations for which they weren't previously intended, which creates the situation where they are easily criticized by their opponents. And I think further exacerbated the divisions. I understand that there was this recognition that legislation wasn't going to happen, but the unfortunate effect was that the response contributed further to the political division. And we're only just recovering from that. I mean, there are going to be cases ripening at the Supreme Court this year that may bring to a conclusion the use of an expansion and reinterpretation of regulations to address climate change. And we may, starting next year, be sort of at a do-over moment where we have to sit back and say, okay, climate denialism is gone. We have political divisions. We don't have a regulatory response to this. The Paris Agreement is not delivering the sorts of results that proponents had hoped for. Where are we? What can we do? It's almost time for a do-over. Now, one big shift that has taken place since those days around Waxman Markey and the EPA Clean Power Plan is industry which vehemently opposed those policies, both legislative and regulatory, in the aughts and the early 2010s, have come around. You've seen the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the American Petroleum Institute, a number of electric utilities, all embracing carbon mitigation and even going so far as to support a price on carbon, which was once complete political anathema to industry. What do you think is precipitating that change in the viewpoint of industry? And do you think that'll have an impact on both Republicans and Democrats uh, who look to industry for guidance on how to navigate energy policy issues? So Neil, I think it's profoundly interesting to wonder why corporate leaders are now stepping out and taking leadership positions on climate. And I actually think it comes down to something about the psychology of corporate leaders. They have become successful in their careers by looking to the future, anticipating what markets are going to look like, positioning their companies for things. And I think they acknowledge what's happening on climate. They see changes in markets around the world with our trading partners. They expect that society and governments are going to respond to climate change and they are positioning their companies to get ready for the future. So they you know, they have no interest in denying what's going to become the economic reality going forward. And you can see that in industries that are directly affected by climate change, like the insurers, but you can also see it by the, even the fossil fuel companies and the utility companies and the transportation companies that believe that there are going to be changes in societal expectations and they're getting ready for it. And now what they want to do is they want to see the, the government 
move hand in hand with them so that government regulations are moving at the same pace that the economy can be transformed. So I credit a lot of these, these leaders, are these corporate leaders are now some of the most interesting thinkers about what to do about climate change. And frankly, as I meet with them and I meet with politicians sometimes in the same day and I try to plumb the differences, I think a lot of it comes down to the psychology that made these people successful corporate leaders. They're now applying the same skills and instincts to climate change. Now, I'm a Republican, you're a Republican. Uh, One of the arguments a lot of Republicans have taken up is that these corporate leaders are making this decision because of shareholder pressure, because of things like ESG. Uh, But you're saying that it's actually in their in their fiduciary interest to pursue these kinds of policies. And one of the things I noted during my time at FERC is that as the cost of clean energy started to really come down and become competitive, there was actually a business case to be made for clean energy. Do you think some of the focus around ESG is actually harmful and is detracting from leadership that these corporate folks are showing anyway, why pressure them if they're already making these responsible decisions? Neil, I think corporate leaders are res- respond to a variety of pressures. They they do have ESG pressures coming from their investors, coming coming from their shareholders. They've got pressures not just from these this government from the but the governments of where they where their other businesses are. They've got pressures from their employees, from their customers. I think what they are actually doing is responding quite sophisticatedly to a suite of pressures. ESG is certainly one of them. Political pressure is another. Pressure from their shareholders, from their customers, from their employees, their new recruits. They have to address all of the constituents to which they are responsible for managing their company. I do think some ESG pressures are harmful. I think some political pressures are harmful. I think some of these public pressures are harmful as well. So the challenge for a corporate leader is to understand the net effect of all of these pressures and to manage the company responsibly going forward. And the the bottom line is the climate is changing. That's going to affect markets. They want to see the companies well positioned. Another point is there has been a remarkable transformation in the cost of solar and wind in particular. Nuclear prices have not fallen like I expected. Natural gas prices, since you and I worked on the Hill together, have have fallen dramatically. So in part, they're just responding to changing economic pressures. The, the reality has evolved tremendously over the last decade. And companies that have the same position a dec- as they did a decade ago would be foolish. As we look to the future and, and the political debates that will no doubt impact the policy conversation, the likelihood is at least one or both houses of Congress are going to flip in the midterm election. We've seen the Biden administration really aggressively pursue a number of initiatives in this area. They initially started at $6 trillion, then $4 trillion, then $2 trillion, then now I think it's like $200 in, in funding <laughs> for clean energy technologies and reconciliation. They went to Glasgow and announced to the world that the U.S. was back when it comes to climate leadership, but really don't have anything to show for it. Do you think that in divided government with industry increasingly behind climate action, but in a split government, you can hold off the far left, you can hold off the far right. Do you think there's a path forward on sort of a pragmatic approach, maybe centered around innovation, border carbon tariffs? Do you think there's a there's a realistic chance of something moving forward in this space in divided government over the next couple of years? I think the reality of climate change is going to increasingly press politicians into action. We're going to see that in wildfire season this year. We're going to see it in hurricane season. We're going to see it over time with with flood insurance rates as the seas rise. So over time, 
politicians are going to have to ask. The question is, are they going to act in the next two years? And in some ways, a divided government is a very positive opportunity for that because Republicans and Democrats have to work together. They can't jam one another. And that's a very that can be a very constructive conversation. From my view, over the long term, the notion that we can address this through regulations or subsidies are going to prove to be futile. In the end, we have to recognize that there is a cost associated with emitting CO2 into the atmosphere. We need to quantify that cost. The government should impose a cost on that, use that revenue, I hope, to address the deficit and some of these terrible fiscal conditions that we have going on. I think we get to that point. The year we get to that point, very hard to predict. It's a difficult political environment. But I also think the conversation we could have between a Democrat president and a Republican House, possibly Senate over the next two years, could be very helpful for eventually getting to a constructive deal. What are your thoughts on this idea of, uh, of border carbon adjustments, of leveraging America's carbon advantage uh, and really penalizing polluters like China and Russia and Venezuela? It seems to be gaining traction on both the right and the left. Could this be the pathway? I think this is the most fascinating climate conversation in Washington right now. The way we used to think about it was if you impose a, a price on carbon, you then need a carbon border adjustment mechanism. But when we think just about a carbon border adjustment mechanism, it makes it clear that the United States as an efficient economy is a low, relatively low carbon economy. We have a trade advantage versus other large cement, steel, aluminum, glass manufacturers around the world. If we work out something in this space, we can create a trade advantage for U.S. producers. It does force a conversation about what price are we imposing on carbon emissions in our economy. And, and so I do think it inevitably gets us to a constructive place on that issue. Right now, it's really hard to talk about something like a price on carbon because Americans are, are feeling the pinch of inflationary pressure, particularly when it comes to energy. The cost of energy everywhere is up. And so you, you talk about layering on a price on carbon and people immediately react negatively to that. But you just cited an interesting point. If you quantify the costs of regulations and subsidies and mandates, they're likely to be significantly more expensive and adding more costs than a transparent price on carbon. Do you think that ultimately might be persuasive, like comparing the costs of subsidies and mandates and command and control regulations to a price on carbon? Price on carbon starts looking pretty good. Well, it does. And, and when you get to that conversation, I think a price on carbon is compelling. But let me go back to something you said earlier. So I talk to people about putting a price on carbon every day. And I will tell you that it's only with politicians that that is a difficult conversation. It is remarkable that people like you who, who serve in regulatory roles, people at corporate leaders, people who work on trade policy, they all recognize that in the end, a price on carbon is the efficient way to address carbon pollution. And, and I think that eventually the politicians will sort of try every other approach, but will inevitably, because of economic reality, end up supporting a price on carbon. So when you know it's very important to recognize that this is politically difficult, but from an economic and business perspective, it's the right answer. You made a really interesting point uh, a while back that, that I wanted to highlight. You said that if a price on carbon, a tax on carbon moves forward, you would encourage all your friends to not pay it. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a really clever way to kind of frame up the, the issue. Yeah. So I hate taxes. 
I mean, I hate taxes. I, I wrote a check to the IRS this year. I hate taxes. And as you're right, I, my bumper sticker is, if we put a price on carbon, don't pay it. Do everything you possibly can to avoid it. And, and for an individual, that means next time your hot water heater needs to be replaced, put in an electric one that's being run by low carbon electricity instead of a gas one. But what for really the important part is for industrial customers in the United States, that means they will transform the way they produce goods and services so that they're not emitting as much CO2. They will respond very quickly to a long-term price on carbon. That's where you suddenly align economic interests with climate interests. And instead of pushing off addressing climate, we move forward on addressing a climate. We accelerate our climate actions because we should all avoid paying the carbon price. I mean, that is it. That's the whole point is to change behavior. Don't emit the CO2 into the atmosphere. Don't pay the carbon tax. Now, one of the things for those of us who, who care about carbon mitigation and are in the policy sphere uh, wrestle with, it's hard to convince consumers, convince voters to who appreciate climate change, you know, you survey folks, they believe climate change is real, it's man-made. But when you start to put the cost to it, they start to shy away because it's illusory. It's something that's hard to see. Now, I think we're seeing with increased extreme weather events and weather volatility, I think a greater recognition on the part of Americans and folks around the world of the realities of climate change, droughts, wildfires, more severe storms, but it's still hard to gauge. And Another point that you made that I thought was really interesting is at the international level, we talk about 1.5 degrees. We're talking about Celsius. So yeah. a lot of Americans, when they hear 1.5 degrees and they're like, we need to completely transform our lives over 1.5 degrees, it's easy to dismiss that and say, what, 1.5 degrees? Why am I going to fundamentally alter my, my way of life and make these sacrifices for something as measly as 1.5 degrees? Explain why that is the complete wrong way for Americans to think about this. Neil, if you will take this part of your podcast and just play it on loop again and again and again, I would appreciate it. And here's what I would tell people. Do not talk to US policymakers about 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. They do not understand what Celsius means. The way to talk to US policymakers is to say, we are on track to experience a 6.5 degrees Fahrenheit increase in global temperatures by 2100. That will be accompanied by approximately a 30 inch rise in sea level. Those are the two basic fundamentals, six and a half degrees Fahrenheit, 30 inches of sea level rise. That's the course we're on. What we need to be talking about is do we want to change the way we act to either increase that temperature increase and sea level rise or decrease that temperature increase and sea level rise? Because that's the course we're on. And I'm frankly, I'm tired of people talking about these aspirational goals of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius because people don't understand them and we're probably not going to meet them. We need to confront the reality of the course that we're on and we need to talk about it in ways that people understand meaning we have to talk about it in degrees Fahrenheit. That's just such a good point. And it's a way to kind of realistically communicate to Americans what this means, because I have too often seen folks be immediately dismissive because 1.5 degrees, like that big a deal. I want to pivot a little bit to the nuclear industry. You know, you and I spent a great bit of time earlier in your career when you worked within the industry. At that time, all of the focus was on Yucca Mountain, issue one, two, and three. And suddenly the shale revolution coupled with things like the WIND PTC 
went on to put tremendous pressure on nuclear power. I had to deal with this in the markets that first overseas. It was so complicated trying to balance state-level subsidies for nuclear power plants with efficient market functioning. Was the nuclear industry kind of blindsided by these economic challenges? And what is the future for nuclear power in the U.S.? I'm a big proponent. I think without nuclear power, our single greatest form of baseload generation, it will make meeting our decarbonization goals impossible if we start to see an uptick in the retirement of these nuclear plants. How do we preserve this industry? So, Neil, I think people in this business become wise when they realize how far off of the forecast the economics of energy production have been. In the early 2000s, when you and I were working together in the Senate, we did not expect natural gas to fall from $18 in MCF to $2 in MCF. We did not forecast, at least I did not, the fall in wind and solar prices. And I was optimistic about the cost of the next generation of nuclear plants coming online. Um, wind and solar prices have fallen, natural gas prices fell, the nuclear industry's costs have risen, and the price of new nuclear plants have risen beyond what I could possibly imagine. I agree that without large amounts of low emission baseload power, we cannot power a modern economy here and around the world. And I think nuclear is going to be a necessary component. I'm saddened that the nuclear industry has not been able to lower the cost of its operating plants and certainly has not been able to lower the costs of future plants. I think that absolutely has to happen if we are going to provide the amount of energy the world needs without harming our climate without imposing irreversible harm on the climate. The nuclear industry has to succeed just like the solar, the wind, and every other low-carbon technology industry has to succeed, or we are not going to meet this challenge. Taking a step further back in your career, after appropriations, I mentioned you were at the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. You know, one of the things that I look upon as I reflect on my career, when I first came to Washington, the chairman and the ranking member of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee were both from New Mexico. And the political pendulum swung back and forth in the early 2000s, and they handed the gavel back and forth. But the agenda of the committee didn't change. Energy policy generally was dictated by what was underneath your feet and what was over your head and what your resources were. Energy was more geographic and not political. You had Republicans in the Northeast who had much more in common with Democrats and Republicans in Appalachia in the South who had much more in, co in common with Democrats from that region. And, and it wasn't political. I have been saying, and I don't mean this to be funny, but to me, people ask me, Neil, how do, how do we overcome this? How do we actually move toward reasonable carbon mitigation solutions without sacrificing reliability and energy security and affordability? And my response is, it's easy. We need to make energy policy boring again. Mm. When energy policy is boring and you take the politics out of it, you can get constructive things done. Do you think we're at a point where we can go back to the days of Domenici and Bingaman style governing and, and work together on constructive solutions? No, I don't. I, I agree with you. It would be nice if energy policy could be boring again, but I think this is one of these scrambled egg phenomena. I think the way the electricity industry is now regulated is so different than it was in the 1990s, and I don't think we can go back. I think the rise of the importance of climate and the politics of climate change are here indefinitely. And I think we have to deal with the cards that we've been dealt. We have to figure out a way to put deals together in a manner that's quite different than it was before. I yearn for those days when there could be civil discourse, when members could sit down and I think make decisions that involved a lot more compromise than we see possible today. I think it's a little bit of a waste of time just to yearn for the way that it used to be. We have 
have to deal with the reality that we have today. It's much more complex. And, and I do worry, Neil, that these pressures may not drive us together. It may be that the pressures cause us to fight harder with one another. And we may be in for a period of time where actually this division grows rather than brings us together. One of the things I appreciate about your efforts is bringing Republicans to the table on this. I think one of the catastrophic mistakes that has been made by folks who care about climate change, I don't like using the term climate activists or climate advocates, people who care about climate change, huge mistake was they allowed one party to sort of possess it, right? I think climate change right now is viewed as a democratic issue, as an issue on the political left. And that is so frustrating to me, but it's the reality of where we are. And and sometimes I get so irritated. So I, I've got a friend of mine, Carlos Curbelo. He was the leading Republican in the House of Representatives uh, when it came to climate change and carbon mitigation. He had a difficult election and all of the environmental groups and climate groups supported his opponent because yeah. of his position on Obamacare. And I'm sitting here pulling what little hair I have left out saying, what does his position on Obamacare have to do with your support? You are the organizations that are supposed to be propping up candidates who are advocating for things you care about to knock out the number one Republican on responsible climate solutions because of his position on a health care issue seems just totally, totally insane to me. And I do think it's important that groups like yours support Republicans who are willing to engage in these conversations. We cannot allow this to be perceived going into the future as a single party issue. I'm sorry, that was much more of a statement than a question, but it's something that is really bothering me. But Neil, it's absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct. I mean, many of the major environmental and climate groups can be completely relied upon to support the Democrats in elections, which means that the Republicans, even if they're inclined to work with them because they know that they are talking to a political adversary when they try to work with a climate or an environmental organization. I challenge climate and environmental organizations to support a group of Republicans who are really good on these issues, and it can be hard for them. I think Lisa Murkowski is incredibly well-informed and well-intentioned on these issues. Most of the climate and organizations cannot think about supporting her because she also supports opening and more for oil and gas production. I think the climate groups have to confront that political reality and realize Lisa Murkowski is one of the best policymakers that they need to support if they're ever going to have deals in the energy and climate space. And there are other Republicans like that. So you are absolutely right. If, if we are facing an existential challenge, all of us have to reconsider the politics of climate change. And that is absolutely true for the environment and climate groups that are reliably left of center. They can't stay that way. That, that just, we will not get the necessary political deals together if groups continue to contribute to the wedge between Democrats and Republicans on climate issues. Well, Alex, we've, we've covered a lot of ground on the podcast, a lot of substance, but on the Plugged In podcast, we like to end with something light uh, about our guests and, you know, give our listeners insights into what motivates people who participate in this arena outside of their substantive work. You uh, spent a good bit of your time uh, in your most important role as father, as a swim dad. Yeah. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that entails? Because as a soccer dad myself, it's pretty easy. Uh, what's it like to be a swim dad? 
Uh, well, I'll just tell your listeners, if you have a six, seven or eight year old who's doing summer swim and they're getting good enough and they start thinking about swimming year round, give me a call. I want to talk to you. I've been waking up at four o'clock in the morning for 14 years now. I have two swimmers now swimming in college. It is a lifestyle more than a sport. It is exhausting. As a matter of fact, my youngest is going to college, swimming in college next year. And this fall, I can set my alarm at like maybe 6 a.m. And it is going to change my life. I am so excited about this. So swimming has been wonderful for me and my family. One of the great things about swimming is my kids are sound asleep at 930 at night because they've got to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. But for those of you with young kids thinking about this, just be aware it is a lifestyle of more than it is a sport. Well, Alex Flint, uh, thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you for your contributions to the energy policy debate in this country. And thank you for uh, for being a great father to your kids. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Great to see you. Take care, Neil. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.